Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 324. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lendit FinTech. Today's episode is brought to you by Lendit FinTech LATAM, the region's leading FinTech event. It's happening both online and in person in Miami on December 7th and 8th. Latin America is still the hottest region for fintech in the world, and Lendit Fintech LATAM features the leading players in the region. So join the LATAM fintech community this year, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. In-person and virtual tickets are available at lendit.com slash LATAM. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Stephanie Kirkpatrick. She is the CEO and founder of Aurum. Now, Aurum is a super interesting company. They're still pretty new and they're trying to solve a very big problem. They've had great traction already. And you go to their website and it talks about frictionless financial infrastructure. What it really means is about moving money around quickly and doing it with reduced risk and uh, reduced costs. So, Really, we're talking about changing a system that has been set up decades ago that really never imagined even the internet, let alone uh, instant communication between people. And so what RM is doing is they're building a layer sort of between the, the fintech companies, the banks, and the consumer where you can basically have instant payments even if the actual money itself doesn't move instantly. And then when when money does get around to moving instantly, and we talk about FedNow and uh, the Clearinghouse and other options that, that exist today, or not in the case of FedNow, but will exist very soon, and um, we talk about how they can still kind of work within those systems. And when money moves around instantly, they will still be able to help manage that process. It really was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Peter, hi. So great to be here today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's get started by by giving the listeners a little bit of background. I'd love to kind of hit on some of the highlights of your career before you started Aurum. So if we back way, way, way up in time and probably more of a backup than I want to actually honestly admit, um, I started <laughs> my career as a certified financial planner. So I've always just had this passion for helping other people who have less be able to have more with what they have, right? And sort of answering the evergreen question, if I have a dollar, if I have a hundred dollars, if I have a thousand dollars, how do I optimize it? And so that got me hooked on essentially building technology that could help solve that problem. So I spent mm-hmm. a number of years, actually almost a decade, working for a company called LearnVest, both pre and post acquisition, building financial planning technology and specifically building algorithms that could help figure out what should I do with that one dollar, one hundred dollars, thousand dollars, right? Finding the sort of mathematically perfect answer and then connecting the dots for people to actually be able to implement that. And what I found in the sort of financial planning space is that there's so much interest in having the answer to the question, what should I do? Pay off debt, save more, invest more. And then there's the reality of like maybe five or 10% of that ever actually happens in someone's life because it's hard. It takes time. And most importantly, it's actually full of friction. If you think about the last financial transaction, Peter, that you did in your life, how did you do it? Where did you do it? How long did it take? Most people would sort of recount a story. In fact, I have a personal one where I I moved money out of my investment account at Betterment and it took seven days, seven days for the money to go from inside of Betterment back to the bank where I needed it to get to. And we're in an instant economy where everything else, literally groceries, 
massages on demand, you name it, has gone to instant. And yet our own money, access to liquidity, to be able to pay bills, to fund an emergency, to be able to get money in or out of the market at the right time, it's all locked up in an outdated system that was built over 50 years ago. And so the sort of aha and sort of inspiration for Orem has always been tied back to my roots as a financial planner, seeking that sort of eternal answer to the question, not how do I get you the best advice, because actually the math is doable and people can reach out and get access from an advisor or a bank or a financial planner. It's the implementation. And if we dreamed about the best outcome, the best outcome would be that we could move money 24-7, 365. There'd be an easy button for your financial life and sort of everything would be automated, right? You'd be paying off your credit card debt, not once a month if you hopefully have money left over, but literally $10 a day in the background, right? Mm -hmm. And if there was extra money in your account, it would be automatically implemented to be saved, invested, you know, a number of different sort of platforms. And so that was kind of the beginning of thinking about, huh, how do we get implementation off the ground? How would we build an easy button for your financial life? And what we netted out is to understand that like to build the easy button for your financial life, you actually have to rewrite payments infrastructure. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> you actually can't just build the button because you could push it and it, it wouldn't do anything. And so, you know, Orem has become the industry leading platform for smart real time money movement. And we're tackling financial infrastructure at its roots by building embeddable infrastructure, specifically APIs that actually enable 24 seven, 365 access to liquidity, money in and money out of any type of account or platform works for banks, works for lenders, works for fintechs, works for merchants, and sort of abstracting the idea that you ever even have to know how it moved, you just have to make the decision how fast. And you've started to see places where this has become more real, right? You have a few dollars in Venmo, you want to get it out quickly, you can instant transfer. So the world has started to pick up on the idea that money should be moving faster. And we want to be the enabler for that to happen literally everywhere. Right, right. No, that makes sense. And it's funny because I, I had this similar situation. I bank with a top 10 bank and I also have, I bank with a fintech company and I move money between the two on a you know semi-regular basis. But I moved money from my top 10 bank to my fintech company uh, last week and mm -hmm. I keep thinking it's going to improve. But <laughs> again, it takes like four business days to be fully there. And I'm thinking this is something I've done maybe 20 times before, 25 right. times before. I would think it's a low-risk transaction, but it isn't. So maybe before you sort of start talking about what Orem does, maybe we could address why are we still taking four, five, seven days to move money between financial institutions? Well, it's the same sort of question I would ask about, you know, why haven't we upgraded lots of things in this country? Well, technology is sort of like rocket ship launched us towards expectations as consumer goods to have, you know, Amazon same day delivery and to have Uber at our front doors. There are many pieces of US infrastructure, physical and otherwise, that have just really not been touched in this sort of innovation economy. So I think there's much work to do. And specifically, if you think back into the last 50 years, the majority of money movement that happened in the U.S. didn't demand, it didn't require a real-time transaction. So first of all, our sort of expectations have changed. So the system was built in an era when it was perfectly suitable, in fact, innovative, right? Because at the time, people were using cash and checks essentially only. And the advent of ACH, the ability to use the automated clearinghouse, was actually net new innovation at the time. Fast forward to where we are today, and it's no longer innovative. It's now antiquated. And we struggle with being able to upgrade a very deeply embedded piece of infrastructure. 
And so if you're a bank, if you're a financial institution, and remember there are 11,500 financial institutions hooked into ACH, the investment to make even a moderate change is massive, oftentimes prohibitive. So that's where APIs like Orums can come into the augmenting and additive to sort of the existing baseline infrastructure. And a lot of it, frankly, boils down to technology. One, you mentioned it, Peter, is risk management. To move money in real time, you have to manage risk in real time. Today's data consortiums are predicated on an era when check caching was the problem to be solved. And so they use batch files that get uploaded a couple times a day. They're manually reviewed by humans. The human in the loop problem is huge. And so banks are inherently anti-risk, low-risk machines. And so this process has worked, and it worked until it didn't. And now we're in the generation where it doesn't work. It has to be changed. And with $62 trillion on the line of annual money movement, we're at the tipping point for not only the massive innovation, but real traction to move away from a system that doesn't serve our needs to more modern rails, including real-time payments, FedNow, Visa and MasterCard offer card options that can move money in real time. So now we actually have the opportunity to move money on faster rails. And the question becomes, which rail, at which moment in time, at the best price, with the lowest risk? So now you also have to solve a different kind of problem in addition to solving for the baseline infrastructure. So maybe um, you can describe exactly what you're doing here because I mean, most people listening to the podcast will understand ACH and how antiquated it is. But they probably don't understand exactly what you're doing. And you touched on FedNow. I mean, there's plenty of initiatives out there that are beyond FedNow that are happening today. Like, you know, you mentioned Venmo, which I think uses Visa Direct from memory. Maybe you can talk about how you're addressing the problem and what sort of, I know you've got like an API-based system. You've got some advanced machine learning uh, algorithms in place. But why don't you just describe what Aurum is doing? Happy to talk more about what Orem's doing. And I think the easiest way to describe it, honestly, is to take a look at Amazon. And the reason I pick Amazon is because as consumers, we've been sort of trained to get excited about one thing and one thing only. Did the package come instantly? How fast did it get to my front door? Amazon has built all the technology, including machine learning and intelligence and risk management to figure out how to use FedEx, UPS, DHL, USPS and their local blue vans and probably a number of smaller providers domestically and internationally to get that package from point A to point B. They manage the price, they manage the speed, they manage every piece of it. The consumer checks out and it's instant, right? That's the same thing that Orem actually does, but we do it for money movement. So we take all those things you talked about, Visa Direct, MasterCard Send, FedNow, which isn't live yet, but it's coming, real-time payments, the actual RTP network, ACH, wires, We take all of that and we package it into the behind the scenes of our APIs. You hit our API with a simple request, move money from point A to point B. For this person, from this account to this account, it can go point to point. And our APIs then kick in, our intelligence layer looks at the type of transaction, how big is it, where's it coming from. We think about all the different vectors of risk that might go into that transaction, the risk that it might not settle in three days, so just your basic non-sufficient funds risk, so the T plus three settlement window. We look at the ACH return risk. So there's 60 more days of fraud returns that could come in. So what do we think the probability of return is? We then look at what type of transaction and how it should route, which network of banks we should pick from. And so we take all that complexity, which you would otherwise have to build individually, right? And you don't have engineering teams at banks or fintechs necessarily having time to go build multi-year integrations to get all of these different pieces. And then keep up with the next thing coming, right? So we talked about FedNow coming and soon we'll have settlement on the blockchain, USDC, crypto solutions, 
it's just an ever-changing sort of world. And so while we don't see each of those rails as competitors to each other, we actually see them like Amazon does as part of the final mile aspect of getting money to move in real time. And so that's how we can achieve via API money moving in both directions, real-time pull and real-time push 24-7, 365 in under 15 seconds. Okay, so then just take my go back to my example of moving from my top 10 bank to my fintech company. If both of those were on Aram's platform, you would be able to see that, oh, in the last three years, he's moved this same amount of money like 20 times. You flag it as low risk, but then someone's got to make the decision, right, that this is okay. Who is going to take the the risks that, okay, it might, it might be low risk, but it's not zero risk. You know, someone's going to have to say, right, well, let's make it instant payment, but the money is still not going to actually move, right, in real time. I mean, maybe you can talk about a little bit between the sort of dynamics between the risk and the movement. So it's actually a huge piece of how Orem operates and a very important aspect of what we do is the risk management and the decision, right? Just like in the business world, everybody likes to have an opinion and it's very hard to make the decision. Inside of our platform, we actually do the decisioning for you. We have some options. So for bigger customers, larger banks that have big decisioning engines and or you know sort of uh, larger operations we can work with you to allow the decision to sit on the bank side but by and large people are choosing orm because they don't want to have to make the decision they want to rely on the intelligence layer and the machine learning to identify that level of risk and then actually route it accordingly knowing that they may pay a slightly higher price to have the risk handled on their behalf and so peter when i think about the example you gave where you've got you know two three years of history of sort of excellent banking behavior, moving money from a top 10 bank to a fintech and back and forth, the way I would describe Orem's intelligence actually isn't to say that we look back three years because who you were three years ago, what you might've been doing, less relevant, right? Real-time money movement is very much about real-time risk. Is it actually Peter is the first question. (laughs) You might've had somebody log in under an unauthorized account takeover, looks like Peter, it's your credentials, but there are some other vectors Um, that suggests that it's actually not you, right? And there's lots of things I could give simple examples on. Obviously, the decisioning is much more complicated, but logged in from Safari normally uses Chrome, crossed with time of day and size of transaction and the reattempt to unlock a locked out password, you know, 15 times in three milliseconds, right? Combinations of scenarios that suggest it's actually not Peter or combinations of scenarios that look across our data network, which is a big part of what we do and say, hey, this pattern has been seen before, right? that the money originated here, was sized in this way and transferred in this way looks just like a fraud pattern that we're seeing with XYZ customer. So we've already seen that before. So a lot of the decisioning in real-time money movement actually, again, has way less to do with transaction history, although that's, I'd say, a small part of it. 90% of it really comes from variables that look at the different vectors of information that identify what's going to happen and give us predictive information much of which is not tied to, frankly, transaction history and is much more broadly tied to signal about the account, the transaction itself, you know, the vehicle being used to log in and authenticate, things like that. If it's deemed as low risk, you choose a different method than ACH. Is that how you sort of make the money more, uh, more instantly available? Like, What would be an example of, of something that would basically move, create this from four business days to same day? instant. And that's exactly where the magic is, Peter. So by having the risk intelligence, it's proprietary, built on a network that has super served sort of the purpose of building this intelligence, and then also being able to decision and take that risk, 
There is actually no alternative form of pulling money other than using the debit and credit rails, which the cost is usually prohibitive for on a small transaction or even a medium or large size transaction because it's generally tied to interchange. So often that's not the top choice, although it's available, we can pull via card rails. Real-time payments doesn't offer the request for payment feature yet in the market broadly. Fed now is expected to offer it right at launch. So, you know, 2023 is coming. Um, but in the meantime, what Orem does is we essentially look at the risk in the transaction. To your point, it's low risk. We're actually going to use our liquidity as a service platform, which is inside the back end of our money movement system. Uh. And we will forward up to five days of advanced funding, much like Venmo does, actually. If I Venmo you, Peter, $100 right now, you can instantly transfer it out. You can Venmo it to someone else. You can spend it with a merchant on your debit card, et cetera. And Venmo actually doesn't even have Stephanie's $100 yet, right? They're taking the same kind of risk. We do that at scale on an enterprise basis. So sort of a supercharged Venmo. Right, gotcha. The liquidity is being fronted via Aurum. It's not real instant. And then good segue into, into Fed now. When, when that launches, I imagine it won't really impact you other than the fact that maybe your liquidity as a service platform is is used less. Am I right in that sort of thinking? It certainly could be used less, which would be great because I think ultimately, you know, we'd love to see money movement, both pull and push, always be in real time when possible. But actually, it's very much like in the Amazon example where it's yet one more final mile delivery option, right? One more path with broader coverage. There's expectation, maybe no certainty, but certainly expectation that the Fed now real-time solution, which will be considered sort of instant payment versus the clearinghouses real-time payments products, that it will have faster traction and adoption in the market, right? Because it's tied to the Fed, because it is deemed to be sort of more, let's say, user-friendly, although it runs on essentially the same operating standards and ISO standards as RTP, there is expectation that it will sort of be utilized faster and more broadly than RTP has been. So the challenge with moving to real-time payments in one part is risk management, right? Which we've absolutely solved for. The other part is, is there enough coverage to actually receive a real-time payment? Have enough banks signed up on the new protocol, right? This isn't ACH. This isn't a wire. This is a net new form of transaction. So it requires real-time ledgering. It requires an update to core systems. It requires running a 24-7 banking operation, which certainly isn't the norm in a nine-to-five setting. And so the clearinghouse, having gone first ahead of Fed now, has certainly seen the adoption challenge of converting thousands of banks away from one operating protocol to a net new one that has certainly absolute value and enhancement to it, but operating challenge, right? Pre-funded accounts, new ISO standards, different messaging system, risk management looks different. And so as a part of that, kind of feels like Apple Pay. Do you remember when Apple Pay was so new that maybe like 10% of people took it, right? But you still tried. And then it went 10, 10, 10, maybe it went to 30 for a while. It went to 50%, hovered there. And then it went from 50 to 95%, and we're almost fully there. Real-time payments has had sort of the same curve, right? About 25 banks today can send and receive a real-time payment. About 150 can receive. So that's actually getting a lot better. So in Orem's sort of infrastructure, when we make that decision about how much risk is in the transaction and should we forward the money using liquidity as a service, We then look at the other side and say, how fast can we get it in your account? And we will, where applicable, use RTP and when it becomes available, Fed now. And in some cases, we'll use the card network. So there's a variety of different ways to move money. Again, price, coverage, do I have your account routing number? Do we actually have your debit card number? Those are all going to be factors in figuring out how to get it into the destination. 
during that five-day advanced funding window if applicable. Right, right. So what Aurum is offering is this sort of middle layer, I guess, where you don't, it doesn't matter if FedNow gets a lot of traction or not. It doesn't matter if, if the clearinghouse right. gets a lot of traction. You can make sure that everybody is covered. That's exactly right. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Then, so then you, you did touch on this. I do want to um, talk about crypto. You, you, you mentioned it and um, I was um, buying more crypto over the weekend and, you know, it, it's instant. Like I had the money sitting in my account. That still takes time to get it from your bank account into you know one of the exchanges. But I moved money from Coinbase out to somewhere else, uh, and then I moved it somewhere else, and it all happened pretty much instantly. Sometimes it took a few minutes, but so that obviously has its own set of challenges. But how do you think about you know crypto, which is it is operating twenty four seven today? Um, how do you think about that in respect to what what your existing offerings are? So I'll say two things here. First of all, I think crypto as a category is very interesting, um, less so because I'm investing in any one coin and more so because I think it's just proven to the financial world that there is demand for things to happen in real time. And and frankly, in a blockchain you know settlement where there's less detail on the history, let's say, of how the transaction occurred. Now, banks don't like that, right? Regulators don't like that for anti-money laundering purposes, et cetera. So will pure play crypto sort of take over as the likely dominant form of money movement, probably not, at least not right now, not without regulation. But where I do see Orem playing, and I think, you know, very near term, is to look at USDC, right? Look at a, a, the fiat currency converted into digital and think about how that actually streamlines and becomes yet another form of money movement, right? Like RTP, like FedNow, like debit and credit rails. It's this next generation means of moving and transacting money and it's going to be done digitally and so to us again that's just additive to the back end of the platform i think it will have nascent adoption initially but it's ultimately one of the most powerful ways to think about cross-border payments to think about the translation back to another fiat currency in a different country there are many reasons why usdc and ultimately the conversion from fiat to digital and back becomes really meaningful but you touched on a key thing peter which is today currently to get money into a digital setting and or to get it into crypto does essentially require either ACH or wire. And in the case of ACH, as we've talked about, you're looking at three, four, five, maybe more days. And many crypto platforms actually hold the funds anywhere from seven to 60 days because of the risk of returns, of fraud, you know, sort of inherent to the problems that we talked about originally with ACH. So it's not without its challenges to get money in and out. Once it's in a crypto wallet, like you said, you're golden. So I think what we're seeing is just the very beginnings of what will be one of our bigger, um, I think over time, forms of transacting in this alternative setting. And I think we're very supportive of anything, frankly, that comes to life, whether it's today crypto and, and USDC that gets talked about, or it's another form of settlement. As those things emerge, Aurum is aggregating all of those money movement protocols on our backend so that our customers, our partners don't have to worry about what's next, right? Fully redundant. So multiple connections to the offerings. If I want to go to bank A and their RTP is down, I go to bank B and pull RTP there. So there's no concern about uptime. And so that redundancy is huge, right, um, in terms of trust in the market. And then secondarily, the idea that we have the entire portfolio fully future-proofed. So you want to move money in this capacity, we have it, right? And ultimately, that's one less integration, one less connection, one less decision point that a technical team has to make. So those resources inside banks, financial institutions, fintechs, lenders, can actually be prioritized towards what their value prop is, which in most cases is not actually moving money, right? That's a means to an end for the products and services they build. And so we think it can be built better, faster, smarter, 
and frankly, all done under a unified API. Right, right. Okay, so let's get back to Orem. I'd love to sort of get a little bit of um, more details on your journey. I mean, when, maybe you could share when you landed your first client and, and can you give us some of the names of, of organizations that you have on board now that you can share publicly? So I'll share a little detail here. We're pretty private about our customer base, in part because our customers are under NDA with us as we're still in a private beta and pretty limited access. But I'll share two partners that we're really excited about. First is a company called Creatively, which is a sort of LinkedIn type platform for creatives. And it's a really incredible place, not only to showcase work, but to actually get connected to large brands for both full-time and part-time and contract creative work. And as you think about what the creator economy is bringing, um, in terms of trillions of dollars of assets and opportunity. And then you unpack that most creators, unlike you and I, who probably get salaries and paychecks, actually get paid on net 45, net 30 terms from big companies. They get paid out very infrequently. They have long lead times on access to their income and their wages. It's a great place for Orem to actually come in and use real-time payments and liquidity as a service. So we help creatives get paid in real time. And I think that's a huge unlock as so much of the world has shifted to a structure that is less sort of, let's say, typical to the payroll cycle and the schedule of wages. So just wage access in general is really important. And I think a super fun use case of a way you might think about real-time money movement having huge impact in society and, frankly, very specifically in, in getting liquidity and income into the right hands of the right people at the right time. And then I talked about my brokerage platform, right? So we're working with a um, brokerage company, Public to help move money out on a real-time basis. Now, obviously, everyone's excited about moving money into capital markets and investments uh, on a real-time basis as well. But as you and I talked about, there's times when you need money out and you need it instantly for whatever reason. So those are some good examples where real-time money out or money into the hands of the consumer has been meaningfully impacted by having Orem services in the back end. They're non-banks, obviously. What about banks? Are you getting, I mean, are you focusing on the non-bank sector more than the banking sector? or is it both? So it's a little bit of both, actually. So interestingly, we find there's a ton of interest in the market, and we work with some banks in addition to fintech players. We're working with a bank called First Horizon. Again, very similar structure, adding intelligence and real-time capabilities. So if you step back and look at the landscape, you'll find that outside of the JP Morgans and the Wells Fargo's and the cities of the world, the vast majority of the entire banking sector lacks the access to the intelligence, right? Again, hooked into outdated data consortiums, and or they lack access to the rails. They're on ACH or Fedwire only. And so we can be critical path for whether you're a bank or a fintech, it doesn't really matter, to being able to bring to life the ability to offer customers and small businesses real-time money movement in all directions, right? So we do find traction there. You asked about our first customer, I'll tell you, it's terrifying as you're building a company and uh, you're moving quickly And you want to get out there and you're so excited to kind of talk to customers. And the first one says yes. And you're like, oh gosh, it's real. This is happening, (laughs) right? As any founder would tell you, it comes with a healthy dose of fear. Just simply living up to the expectation, right? This isn't like a cute consumer app where you download it. And if like the blue button breaks or the blue button was purple today, not blue. Okay, we'll fix it tomorrow. This is meaningful infrastructure that companies rely on. And so what we said to ourselves is do no harm, right? Don't start with a partner until we're ready. You can have an MVP mindset, absolutely. We're still a startup, we're still a young company, but really, really, really focus on first principles before going live. Pick people that are co-built partners. And I would counsel any founder out there who's thinking about their first customers to say, it's not about the name brand, although that can be exciting. It's about their right partner. 
somebody who's on the other side, your first one to two to three integrations when you're building a platform like ours, where they're going to give you feedback. They're going to be forgiving. They're going to work with you. Maybe you take a concession on price. You probably do. That becomes a showroom customer for you over time that probably build your best products for you because they're there from the beginning, right? And so I think there's so much pride in the first few companies that you get a chance to work with. They become referenceable customers. And so, you know, we started building, you know, the platform in early 2020 and we had our first customer live by that summer. So we moved very quickly, but we did it thoughtfully in a way that said, let's just do one first. Don't do 10, do one. Make sure you absolutely have everything buttoned up, working front to back. All of your operations are flawless and then go to 10, right? And I think when you're a founder, there's this push from your board, from your investors, from internal to feel like you got to get to 10, you got to get to 20, you got to get to 100. And you'll get there. That flywheel starts to turn, but you want to turn it really thoughtfully. You can never, ever go back on your reputation in the market. And as a company that moves money for a living and does risk management for you know its core thesis, we're very thoughtful about how we kind of got off the ground and, and certainly who we worked with first. Right, you're right. Because you one one major mistake here can can be fatal, really. If you if you really, that's right, yeah. If you screw it up. So anyway, I want to talk about fundraising. You got on my radar when you you raised your Series A, and then I suddenly find I think it was literally three months later. I don't know when the the closed rounds happened, but the announcements happened like three months apart. So tell us a little bit about why you went back out so quickly, and a little bit about the what changed in those in those three months. Oh gosh, the fundraising journey. You know, you look back and you think, did this all really happen? Is this is this actually real? Because first of all, we've been building Orem sort of exclusively since quarantine started, right? Um, we actually did our fundraising after New York kind of shut down on March 13th, March 14th of 2020. And we haven't looked back. So we run a fully remote team. We've done all of our fundraising remotely. Um, much like you and I are chatting today uh, to do this podcast, the, you know, the video interaction is sort of all I had. So it's been a really interesting journey just because I think both for myself and for our early investors, frankly, all of our investors, they were figuring out fundraising on Zoom, just like we were. So that was a nice baseline, I think, is that we were kind of in it together. The journey itself has been really interesting because you know, ultimately, we're building something that is big. The TAM is growing by about 8 to 10% every year. So the number of transactions that happen on the old networks that need to migrate to the new networks is constantly growing. So we've got a big problem getting bigger, and that's only focusing on the US, right? So the TAM itself suggests that there's a lot to do. You know, even churning 100 to 200 million in revenue, you've maybe barely cracked 1% of the market. So I think investors can see that there's a big opportunity. Number two, it's hard to build, right? We focused first on great bank relationships and we're really excited about partnering with JP Morgan, Silicon Valley Bank, like tier one world-class providers who are stabilizing the back end of our business. And that was our first investment, right? The right bank partners. And I think, again, to the investor world, you, you could pick a sort of cowboy bank, as there are a few doing crypto and other things out in the market, or you can pick a bank that's going to be with you for the long run that has the track record. Um, and, and that's ultimately where we started. We did all of our stock you know, planning and our information security and all that stuff up front. Like startups often do that way later, right? We said, let's do it first. So I think there was a maturity to um, how we thought about building the business. And because it's hard to build, you know, the idea that we have gotten so far so fast, both with the amount of payments under management. So we'll hit a billion dollars of payments under management by the end of this year. We'll cover about 10 million American households who are receiving faster funding through our customers of our platform. And we've done all of that in less than 18 months. We've done it all remotely. 
I think that plays into that fundraising journey, which is, you know, that yes, the cycles have sped up. That's not just for Orem. That is market wide. You're seeing that certainly in other places, but I think very specifically, we think about first principles, showroom clients, great foundation, incredible technical teams, and incredible leadership. So we've got leaders from Stripe, Square, Marketa. Everybody in the building has done this before, came from payments, understands infrastructure, and is really building world-class solutions. We stood that team up very quickly. We stood up the infrastructure very quickly, got into market, and then the flywheel started, right? And so the difference between Series A and Series B, customer traction, data advantage, you know, the sort of obvious first principle things, revenue obviously uh, being a big factor in there. And, and that's kind of put us on a path where now, you know, as we continue to focus on product market fit, refining our solution, adding features, launching new products, we're really excited about having gone from four people at the beginning of quarantine to what is now essentially a team of 75 in almost 21 states um, across the country and just building towards something that every day we wake up and say could be better. We want to move money in real time and we obsess over that. And, and I think that's really resonated with the market. Is the revenue model, is it a SaaS type model or how are you charging for your services? So it's a full payments model, which means that you will pay on a transaction basis, right? Just like you would anywhere. So cost plus model. And we blend some things in there. So the cost of liquidity as a service, right? We get to do this at scale. So it costs a penny, right? Not a lot of money to have liquidity as a service. And um, we've got really great unit economics because of the volumes that we drive and the bank partners that we've chosen. And we've been super thoughtful about what drives the volume and the metrics that we're looking for to get us to being fully optimized from both a gross revenue and gross margin perspective. So again, I think kind of coming back to first principles, not only did we want to secure a great team, great partners, great early customers, we really thought very early on about the economics. Where do we need to invest so that we're right side up? How do we get those economics working? And if we're going to charge on a transaction basis at scale, you can get ACH very inexpensively. We have to get people excited about paying a little bit more to have risk management, liquidity as a service, and the real-time piece in it. And what we're finding is that people are willing to pay that, right? The willingness to pay is actually very high, particularly on money into a platform where there is greater sort of cost of acquisition optimization that can happen. You just opened an account. Now it's also funded in real time. That's very meaningful. It's also a very sticky consumer experience. We find that people who had instant funding on average do two to three times more transactions per month because now they can see the benefit of putting money into an account. We also find some partners choose to monetize on the way out, right? And you've probably noticed this with Venmo. You notice it in lots of places. Cash app, you know, lots of companies will charge you. Maybe it's a percent of the transaction. Maybe it's a flat fee. Sometimes it shows up as 25 or 50 cents. And ultimately that creates a little bit of a revenue opportunity for the partner of ours and also provides an incredible consumer experience for real time. So that does play into how we think about the economics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. We're going over time, but just a couple more questions I really want to get to. First, what is it going to take and when do you think it will happen before all money, at least domestically anyway, is, is moved around instantly? I guess for Orem's benefit, uh, luckily, I think the answer is probably decades. <laughs> and, and I say that laughing because, you know, look in your wallet. Didn't we just say, you know, 10, 15 years ago, oh, we'll stop writing checks. Do you know how many businesses still write checks as their primary form of money movement? And why is the ACH network actually growing in volume? Because people are doing less with cash and checks. We're a long ways away from it being 100% instant. And frankly, there may be use cases where it shouldn't be instant. And so ACH will probably have its place. But I think it's decades. 
I think over those decades, what we rely on for instant will change. Right now it's RTP, FedNow, card rails, and again, USDC coming. I think there will probably be a lot of innovation, both in how we move money and frankly, what you can build when it's instant. Imagine if money really did move in real time, 24-7, 365, what would the fintechs start to innovate on? What would the next generation of financial services look like? Yeah, we're seeing that with all the crypto stuff. uh, That's really so much innovation happening there. Okay, so last question then. What's on your roadmap now? Where does Aurum go next? It's an interesting journey. I could talk to you about some of the near-term products. We're very excited about launching a federated fintech blacklist and sort of opening up that you know, access open source so that anybody, bank, fintech, whomever, can check our blacklist without being a customer. We're building some really interesting stuff inside of our network around uh, account verification and validation across the network of fintechs that connect with us today in banks. And I think that as we sort of fast forward, you know, a lot of what we're really excited about includes some of our platform pieces today that I think will be really viable, useful products for banks and other partners, real-time ledger, liquidity as a service. Many of those things can actually be standalone. So we see some some real pull from the market to do that as well. And ultimately, I think, uh, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of building new settlement systems and things that will move money in real time. And, and we're not stopping till it's 100%. All right. Well, I really can't wait for the day where uh, it is commonplace, where things move instantly in traditional banks. That's going to be a great thing for the consumer, for small business, for the economy, for that matter. So thank you very much uh, for coming on the podcast, Stephanie. Best of luck. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Okay. You know, there are a few bigger challenges in fintech today than moving us from this old batch-style payment system into uh, modern instant uh, real-time payments. And clearly, there needs to be companies like Aurum out there that can kind of, even when FedNow gets operating, it's not going to be universal, um, at least for some time. So you're going to need to have this kind of layer that sits between the banks where you can still use the other instant payment options and have a seamless experience. Because the consumer, the small business, I mean, when you open an account at Robinhood or at Charles Schwab or, or Fidelity or anywhere, you want your money in there now. You don't want to have to wait for five days. And that's that's a use case that I could see really getting traction. And I think moving money around for payments just between companies, I think that's uh, that's also a great use case. But I could really see how in this instant economy where you've got all the crypto things happening instantly, when people open an account anywhere, they're going to want to have this sort of instant gratification. So it's going to be fascinating to see how it all turns out. On that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by Lendit Fintech LATAM, the region's leading fintech event. It's happening both online and in person in Miami on December 7th and 8th. Latin America is still the hottest region for fintech in the world, and Lendit Fintech LATAM features the leading players in the region. So join the LATAM fintech community this year where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. In-person and virtual tickets are available at lendit.com slash LATAM. <laughs>